0: Um, There is a professor at Lipscomb, which Lauren, I'm sure, who you know, Mm -hmm. David Michelson. I guess you know David. Do you ever have a class? Yeah. Yeah, I I did not. At Michelson. He's a Syriac guy. He knows that we're doing this class, and so uh, I got an email from him this past week and then some uh, printouts, some flyers, that he told me he wanted to send me. He wanted our class to know about these things that are taking place at Vanderbilt, and um, the one that that is somewhat interesting to me I don 't really know too much about this one right here is uh, the canopy and the Byzantine church now we 're not studying the Byzantine church, but the canopy, if you've been to St Peter's in Rome, the that canopy, and there's another name for it, uh, they're using in this particular piece, canopy. There is a canopy, it's got four pillars and then a roof over the pillars, and that's, that is, I guess in the vernacular, called a canopy, but it's over the altar or it's over maybe the, the seat that the Pope sits in. And so there is going to be a lecture by this scholar on the canopy in the Byzantine church and you see the date there. And then uh, there is this other presentation that is listed uh, listed there as well. So I told Dr. Michelson that I would tell you about that. And so I have. I may even take a picture of, the, of what I've got up here on the wall, just so that he'll know. Now, I've been to this, uh, this, uh, this is a, a, a Syriac, this little flyer right here, uh, tells a little bit about the uh, Syriac church, which Dr. Michelson has a great deal of interest in because he is a Syriac scholar, and uh, he has a presentation in the Vanderbilt Divinity School library that is on the Syriac Christian, the Syriac church. And uh, part of what it says here is, is that for nearly 2,000 years, Christians across the Middle East and Asia have shared a common heritage through the Syriac language and culture. Many of these communities <coughs> face the threat of extension, extinction, I'm sorry, the threat of extinction today, uh, which you can imagine to be the case. Uh, I was with him on one occasion when he was taking uh, some people through the library presentation. And he is, I think, involved in trying to build up at the Vanderbilt Divinity School Library uh, the Syriac, uh, Syriac holdings. OK, now to the subject of today. Oh, I want to go back to the first slide. Uh, The the title Shepherd of Hermas, which is our subject for today, has always uh, mystified me because I thought that the people who gave the title to this should have done a better job. When I first encountered the book, I thought Shepherd of Hermas, it's a shepherd who lived in Hermas. I don't know if that's what you initially thought or not, but that's what I initially thought. Well, that's not at all it. I came up with my own title. It's a descriptive title and uh, no one has given any credibility to this title of mine at all, but this is what I understand the the book to be about and to be captured in uh, in this phrase. Visions, commandments, and parables presented to Hermas by the angel of repentance who is dressed in shepherd's clothing. That John, do you agree with that? You've read, yeah. I know, through the whole document. That is a better capturing, I think, of what the book is about rather than the shepherd of Hermas. But who am I to take issue with those who have dealt with the apostolic part? Well, sort of the, the church itself through the woman was speaking to him in a while. Yeah, that's true. In the earlier in the earlier chapter. Shepherd of Hermas, the shepherd, doesn't even appear in this document until you get to the fifth vision. That's about chapter tw- uh, 25. Now here are the translations we used in case anybody has any interest in, in looking at some of these uh, uh, in more detail. The uh, Holmes translation is the one that I'm going to be using. It's the one I've done the photocopies from. But just in recent days and weeks, I got Erman's uh, translation, the second one mentioned here. It's a part of the Lowe Classical Library, and I like it a little bit better than the Holmes translation. But since we started with Holmes, I've decided to stick with that and the readings that we'll do Very from the photocopy is... Lightfoot, is one. Lightfoot Lightfoot is a much older one. I have Lightfoot's at home, and I've had Lightfoot's for years and years, but it's a little bit too stilted for my understanding today. It was translated in a different period, maybe even the late, late 1800s. I don't know if that's right or not. Is that not right? Early, 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 well, early 1800s? I thought it was in the 19th century anyway. Um, so these are, are more modern translations. You see this one, 2007, that one, 2003. And I think those are pretty close to the time when, uh, when the translations were made. Here are some things that we have said about the book before, and then we're going to jump into some reading. Uh, we, I've said several times and in the email mentioned that this, uh, is, uh, this was an immensely popular book among Christians in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. So what we're reading today is something that the Christians of of that time period uh, really enjoyed reading and benefited from it. It is longer. And boy, this caused me all kinds of problems. Because it I have to admit, it got to be fairly laborious reading uh, after a while, but, uh, but interesting. Um, it's longer than any of these apostolic fathers. I've got the Apostolic Fathers all listed over here, longer than any of them, longer than any New Testament book. I'm sure this is a good illustration. But here is Holmes' book, and uh, this right here comprises the shepherd of Hermas in his book. So you can see that this one document comprised a great deal of uh, the total amount of writing among the Apostolic Fathers, 114 chapters. Some of them are pretty short, but some of them aren't. Some of them are quite long. Five visions, you may have seen in the title that I recreated a few minutes ago, uh, there are visions, there are commandments, and there are parables. And then sometimes there are visions within the parables. And the commandments are fairly propositional, but not totally. So there is a uh, Mixing of vision, commandment, and parable. But in a, I guess, strict sense, there are five visions. The book begins with five visions. The shepherd does not even enter the picture until the fifth vision, which we'll see in a minute. Five visions, chapters 1 through 25, 12 commandments, chapters 26 through 49, and 10 parables. One of the parables, the ninth parable, is about, comprises about one third of the entire document. So the ninth parable is extremely long. Oh, and you'll love this. The ninth parable is an explanation of the third vision, see? All very simple. It really, the writing is fairly simple, It's easy to read, tying everything together can sometimes have a few complexities. All right, it is, I suppose, in a technical sense, an an apocalypse, and I took this from Ehrman. I thought it was a good, simple statement of the characteristics of an apocalypse which would be like the book of Revelation in the New Testament and like the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. So an apocalypse, and this captures to a great, to a great extent the characteristics of this document. An apocalypse is a book that records visions given to an earthly prophet, Hermes, usually interpreted by a heavenly messenger John pointed out, there is more. there are more heavenly messengers in this story than just the shepherd. There's a woman who appears in different forms that is also a heavenly messenger. But there's a heavenly messenger, there's an earthly prophet, there are visions, and these contain a number of bizarre and deeply symbolic images that convey heavenly truths to explain earthly realities. Now, I like that. I'm not an apocalypse expert by any means. Uh, in fact, over the years, i probably tried to shy away from teaching classes on <coughs> Revelation or Daniel because I am, I am so much a, uh, this is my way of saying it, a, a propositional type person. Paul's writings, uh, things like that, straightforward, prose kind of writing uh, without highly symbolic things is easier for me to deal with. So I thought Ehrman's description of this is quite good. Now the dating of this, that's another thing that could be helpful in, in your understanding of this. The date of writing ranges from the last quarter of the first century to the mid-second. Now, I, didn't, I don't think that's a clear <coughs> statement. The scholars' suggestion about when it was written, range from the last quarter of the first century to the middle part of the second century. But regardless of where it falls on that continuum, we're looking at a document that was composed either by several authors, but more than likely by one, composed by one person in the very early period of the development of our faith uh, and our church. And so you're getting insight into the message that was presented to those Christians, and we know that those Christians liked the message that they heard. One reason why it might be earlier than mid-second century is that there is no mention, and I wanted to use this word just to impress you, that's a, No mention of the mono-episcopacy. I can't even say it. That's why I wrote it. There's no mention of that. There is one slight mention to of a bishop, but then there are presbyters, there are deacons, there are teachers. But you know, in a lot of these other documents we've looked at, we have seen that almost immediately after the church came into existence, you had a single bishop over uh, a church in a city. Uh, and that's just a fact. Well, you don't find a heavy concentration in this Document on the mono-episcopacy, which may mean it could be earlier rather than later, if that helps any. The Muratorian Canon, which we may look at a document in the latter half of the second century, so maybe 150 and beyond, the Muratorian Canon and Eusebius do link our Hermas to Pius, who was Bishop of Rome in 140 to 150. So you see there are indications historically that perhaps it was written early in this period that we're looking at, or maybe later toward the middle part of the second century. I don't think there is any way to be absolutely uh, definite or sure about when it was written, but again, we know that we're looking at something that took place within the early years of the Christian church. Now this is a document that was considered by many to be canonical or nearly canonical. I don't know if that's a good technical term or not, but I'll use it anyway. Origen and Clement of Alexandria considered it scripture. There are indications that they looked upon this as uh, scripture authoritative writing. Others did not think it to be scripture but thought it was very useful that it could and should be read in churches. I think this is impressive. The Codex Sinaiticus lists it among books of the New Testament. The Codex Sinaiticus, uh, Codex found uh, maybe 18th century, 19th century but it was a 4th century document and it listed, and it contained books of, uh, of the canon, or books of the New Testament, and this document, Shepherd of Hermas, was included in its list, along with the Epistle of Barnabas, right here, Epistle of Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, and then New Testament documents. So we're looking at a book that maybe under slightly different circumstances, might have been included in our New Testament who was Hermas this is about all we know about him Oh, I guess there are a few other things that you can pick out of the writing he's a former slave he's been freed. he's a Christian but he's not a church leader he's a farmer I just thought I'd throw that in there's one real little allusion to the fact that he's on that he's uh, working on his farm and he's married but he has an unsettled family life there are indications that his wife and children are not acting as they should and there is a complaint listed against him by the these angelic beings there's a complaint made against him that he is not being, these are my words, forceful enough to get his wife and his children to behave. That's not a big portion of the book, but there is an allusion to that. So uh, people have tried to tie Hermes. Hermas. There is a Hermas who's listed in Paul's letter to Romans and uh, some people have tried to tie him to that. Uh, some, as I've already mentioned, have tied him to have said that he was the brother of Pius, who was the bishop of Rome in 140. The shepherd, as I've said, does not appear until the fifth vision, chapter 25. And here are repeated themes in the book overlapping among the three different types of material that, that, we, uh, that are included in the book. Obviously, I pick out things that for some reason impress me. You could look through the book, read it, and come away with different emphases than the ones I have. And if you, some of you have read this and you want to to mention some other emphases, that will be fine as we go along. Uh, Purity. Repentance. We'll, We'll read some interesting things about repentance. Wealth and business. I told Phil, I said, Phil, he has some pretty strong negative things to say about people in business. Uh, We'll look at that. Oh, the word for business, by the way, is proxen, and I I wondered why it was translated business, and that's simply the word that I would normally have translated um, doings, activity, things like that. But in this particular context, they translated business. And in the, in the Shepherd of Hermas is about the only time that word, and, and I did a quick, quick glance at this, is about the only time the word is translated business. So you might be off the hook, Phil. I don't know. It, it could just be doings or activity or something like that. But the translators decided to translate business. I don't know why. Um, and then double-mindedness. If both translations really concentrate on double-mindedness, he doesn't like the fact, he doesn't want these Christians whom he's writing to be fickle, he doesn't want them to be uncertain, he doesn't want them to lack confidence, and that's what I understand the double-mindedness here to mean. I've put the word for double-mindedness up there because I I don't recall. Do you recall where double-mindedness is mentioned in the New Testament? I think it's mentioned only one time. James, the practical book of James. He condemns being double-minded. And this word is found, I think, it's only that time in the New Testament, and then it is found in the Shepherd of Hermas, maybe Clement. It's also found very early in some of these very early documents, which is another indication that this could be an early book. Was that the same word that we hit at? Was it First Clement? I distinctly remember a conversation about that. In, in First Clement? Uh, or Second Early on we I think it's found in 1st and 2nd. We haven't looked at 2nd Clement, so it's probably 1st Clement. Yeah, it would be the same word, I think, uh, because I did find it uh, listed in 1st Clement, 2nd Clement, uh, the Didache, I think, had it, um, and maybe one other document, but it's in, it's in uh, the Shepherd of Hermas numerous times. Okay. Now these are the, you have these, uh, you have copies of this, uh, of these writings in front of you. We're gonna try to get through several of these and please stop me at any point. We'll only go so far and then quit when we're supposed to. But uh, these are, uh, last week I handed this, uh, let's see, I think this one, I handed that out and this, but today I've added to that these down here and I'm simply going to read this first one. Here's the way Shepherd of Hermes stops starts. And a lot of these writings would have been orally communicated. So for a moment, just close your eyes. Now don't keep them closed for the entire class. But close your eyes and just listen to what would have been read to the audience then. First chapter, first verse. The man who brought me up sold me to a woman named Rhoda in Rome. Many years later, I met her again, and I began to love her as a sister. Sometime later, I saw her bathing in the Tiber River, and I gave her my hand and helped her out of the water. When I saw her beauty, I thought to myself and said, how happy I would be if I had a wife of such beauty and character. I see Kevin back there smiling. Yeah, you get the drift. (laughs) All right, this was the only, now listen, this was the only thing I thought, nothing more, sometime later, as I was going to Kumei, Kumai, and glorifying God's creatures for their greatness, splendor, and power, I fell asleep as I walked and a spirit took me and carried me away through a pathless region through which a man could not make his way for the place was precipitous and eroded by the waters. When i had crossed the river and I came to level ground, I knelt down and began to pray to the Lord and to confess my sins. While I was praying, the heavens opened. Now this is Hermes who's writing this. The heavens opened and I saw that woman whom I had desired greeting me from heaven, saying, Hello, Hermes. And I stared at her and said, Lady, what are you doing here? And she answered me, I have been taken up in order that I may accuse you of your sins before the Lord. I said to her, Are you now accusing me? No, she said, but listen to the words I'm about to say to you. God who dwells in the heavens and created out of nothing the things that are and increased and multiplied them for the sake of his holy church is angry at you because you sinned against me. Answering her, I said, I sin against you? In what way? she proceeds to tell him that you may not realize it, but you had evil thoughts. I suppose lustful thoughts, that's not specifically described describe you, but you had evil thoughts about me when you saw me come up out of the river. This is chapter 2. As soon as she had spoken these words, the heavens were closed, and I was terribly shaken and upset. And I thought to myself, If even this sin is recorded against me, how can I be saved? Or how will I propitiate God for my conscious sin? And then the book, and I probably don't need to over-stress this particular part of it, but I do believe that there is an overriding theme that starts right here, and that is, the gravity of sin and the importance of repenting from sin and repenting before it is too late. Now we'll look at this and see that one of the things that the Shepherd of Hermas is noted for is that it does say in several places that after you have been baptized and we'll look at that in a minute. After you've been baptized, you got one chance. You can repent one time. And after that, no more. But sin, and I, don't, I, don't, I won't say especially sexual sin, but sin, uh, including lack of purity, is taken very seriously in the Shepherd of Hermes and is dealt with. Very, uh, very strongly. Look at chapter four, chapters twenty-two and twenty-three. You should have a copy of that. Here is the foreshadowing of an impending persecution. Phil, I'm just going to get to the business part and just. I can't take it. Oh, I can't. Uh, <laughs> all right, I don't, I don't blame you. It, it's pretty hard hitting. In chapter twenty-two. He gives a foreshadowing of the impending persecution. And I'm going to go over to verse, um, oh, let's see. Sorry about that. I'm going to go to the next page. And this would be page 497. He's walking along and he says, I saw a huge beast. I'm right in the middle of page 497. I saw a huge beast like some sea monster. And from its mouth, flaming locusts were pouring out. And the beast was about 100 feet long. It had a head like a ceramic jar. And I began to cry and to beg the Lord to rescue me from it. And I heard the word that I, and I remembered the word that I had heard, do not be double-minded. That is repeated throughout. So brothers and sisters, having put on the faith of the Lord and remembering the great things he has taught me, I took courage and I faced the beast. Go to page 490 time. Here's the interpretation. You have escaped a great tribulation because of your faith and because you were not double-minded even though you saw such a huge beast. Go therefore and declare to the Lord's elect. This is a message that Hermes is to take to the people. Go therefore, declare to the Lord's elect his mighty works and tell them that this beast, is a foreshadowing of the great tribulation that is coming. So if you prepare yourselves in advance and turn to the Lord with all your heart, you will be able to escape it. If your heart is clean and unblemished and you serve the Lord blamelessly for the rest of the days of your life. Cast your cares upon the Lord. He will set them straight. Trust in the Lord, you who are double-minded. Again, double-minded, repeated. Look at chapter four. Uh, let's see, no, this would be commandment four. I'm skipping down to that. The shepherd is introduced in chapter 25. That's about all that is worth noting right there. So the shepherd is one of several heavenly spiritual beings that communicate to Hermes. The shepherd takes over in chapter 25 And is basically for the rest of the book. Chapter 29. I command you, he said, to guard purity and let no thought enter into your heart about another man's wife or about fornication or about some similar or evil, some such similar evil thing. For in doing this, you commit a great sin. I'm going to skip over to... um, Look at, we'll read a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. But in that particular chapter, in chapter 29, he explains all the circumstances under which um, a person can remarry. And he says, and I thought this was interesting, goes into further detail than Jesus. I hope I can capture this. He said, that if a, per, if, a, if a member of a marriage commits adultery, the other one can marry but shouldn't in case the other one repents. In which case, if the, let's call it the innocent party, had remarried, then they wouldn't be in a position of marrying the person again who had been unfaithful to them. So he said, it is better for you not, that's what he explains in that chapter 29, you read it for yourself. Uh, He says that it is better not to remarry, even if you're innocent and have the right to do, because your previous partner may repent and come back. And he advises to keep that situation open. Okay, look at, uh, could be some issue or problem they were faced with at that time. Look at uh, chapter 31. Sir, I said, this is page 513, I would like to ask a further question. Speak, he said, sir. I said, I have heard from certain teachers that there is no other repentance beyond what occurred when we descended into the water and received forgiveness of our previous sins. Obvious reference to baptism. He said to me, you've heard correctly, and so it is. For the one who has received forgiveness of sin, ought never to sin again, but to live in purity. But since you inquire so precisely about everything, I will show you this also, so as to give you no excuse. So as to give no excuse for those who will believe at some time in the future, or those who have just now believed in the Lord. For those who have just now believed, or those who are about to believe, do not have repentance of sins, but they do have forgiveness for their previous sins. Gets into a little bit of technical jargon there. Uh, Read, let's see, look at verse four. For those who recall before these days, the Lord Lord has established repentance. For since the Lord knows every heart and knows everything in advance, he knew the weakness of human beings and the cunning of the devil, and that he would do something evil to God's servants and treat them wickedly. The Lord, however, who is exceedingly merciful, had mercy on his creation, and established this opportunity for repentance. But I'm warning you, this is verse six, he said, if after this great and holy call, anyone is tempted by the devil and sins, that person has one opportunity for repentance. Now this is what gets the most pub from the shepherd of Hermas, is that he says, after you're baptized, You've got this one opportunity for repentance. But there are indications in other parts of the, of the book that, that that is not absolutely the case. Uh, if that one si- it, but if that one sins repeatedly and repents, it is of no use for such a person, for that person will scarcely live. That's uh, one of the most famous, I guess you could say, passages from the Shepherd of Hermas. Um, Self-control, I'm I'm obviously moving fast. If you go down to Commandment 8, which is on 527, self-control, pure living is an important aspect of what the Shepherd of Hermas is saying, along with not being double-minded. If you look on page 529, and also on page... uh, 531, you find a list, and you might be interested in looking at this list, a list of the do's and don'ts. What he says Christians should be doing, what Christians should not be doing. We'll not read those. Some of them would be similar to things you read in the New Testament. Uh, There would be some things that might be a little bit different. You look at Commandment 9, Chapter 39, the total thing is about double-mindedness. And I take it to mean, and I could be misinterpreting, I take it to mean he's really striking at don't lack confidence, don't doubt, but have confidence, be sure of where you stand, and move forward, being strong in, in what you believe. Okay, uh, I wanted to get to the last parable and I don't think we're going to have time to do that. The Well, the first parable, the last thing that I had photocopied here, I thought was very interesting in how he presents Christians as being uh, people living in one city, but they are actually citizens and members of another city, which is a common uh, theme in Christian writing. Here are the things that I glean from the Shepherd of Hermas. Be pure and under control. Um, these early Christians were being told they should be interested in living pure lives. I get the feeling a little bit today in our society and even in our churches we are, we are accenting other things as being crucial to Christianity, and maybe it's because of the culture, we are minimizing, yes, I think even minimizing, uh, the pure lives that we ought to be living. Well, the shepherd of Hermas was writing to these early Christians saying, you need to live a pure life, and you need to be under control. Repent of sins before repentance is not possible. For whatever reason, it might not be possible. Maybe you run out of chances. He indicates that. But he says, repent of your sins before it's possible. Do not let business and wealth distract you. I think that's where the condemnation of business and wealth come in. And he defines luxury. I thought this was interesting. He defines luxury as anything you like to do. Not just you live in a house that's got every amenity possible. He defines luxury as anything you like to do. Bring it under control. So don't let those things, anything you like to do, business wealth, don't let it distract you from focusing. Don't waver, maintain trust. That's the lack of double minded. How (laughs) do you?